Hello, and welcome to an occasional podcast about party politics. I'm Julia Azari. I have a substack of the same name. I'm a political science professor at Marquette University. I write all over the, the internet at that substack at Politico 538 and, and other places. And I also host another podcast, Politics in Question. Um, but I hadn't heard the sound of my own voice enough. So uh, I'm going to be uh, talking about McKay Coppin's new book, Romney, A Reckoning, today. And I'm Seth Maskett. I'm a political scientist at the University of Denver. I'm also the author of the Tusk Substack, uh, which covers the Republican presidential nomination. Um, and we're going to, uh, to be experimenting with a little bit of a podcast format here. I'm hoping to do a few podcast conversations in the run-up to the early primaries and caucuses next year, um, focusing specifically on the Republican presidential nomination contest. And I'm excited to uh, talk with Julia uh, this morning about this book about Mitt Romney, which I think we both found um, to be a very fascinating book. I, I wanted to just start off with, with sort of a general um, impression of it. My, my overall impression of this book um, is that I think it's just a really interesting read on changes to the Republican Party over the last roughly decade. Um, obviously, it covers uh, Mitt Romney's presidential campaigns in both 2008 and 2012. Um, but one of the like persistent themes in it is Romney being aware of you know what we might call this this populist right movement going on on the Republican side. You know, via the Tea Party, uh, late, uh, you know, later from from Trump and his presidential campaign. And there's a lot of it going on in the background in 2012. And Romney seems to be vaguely aware of it, but he largely dismisses it or he thinks it's something he can just like occasionally just sort of nod to. And it's not a major threat to him or anyone else. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, just what, what you thought about that or if you if you noticed that that angle on it. Yeah, I mean. I guess there were a couple of things that I took away from this as far as the kind of Republican angle. And one is this, like, the frame of it. I thought, I listened, I listened to this book almost in its entirety twice, which gave me a lot of time to kind of, like, think about the meta elements of it. And it's this sort of perpetual Republican story that it felt like the journalist was trying to tell about you know, what if this is the direction the party had taken? And it's like the rinse and repeat of Eisenhower and Ford. And if you're really a nerd, maybe Jack Kemp. Um, and there's always a sort of dose of of nostalgia around those stories. And it's also like kind of a, you know, they're, they're always a story about the same thing, which is refusal to fully participate in the kind of evolving Republican Southern strategy, which maybe has become the kind of fascist strategy. That I think these things are all all connected, um, and so it really puts. I thought it sort of puts Romney into that same category, while also drawing out some fairly unique aspects of his um, of his biography. And I know we're going to get into populism a bit later, um, but it. I'm wondering what you thought about this sort of connection between Romney as this, you know, iconoclastic figure and the the telling of the modern GOP. Yeah, I mean, I think we see in there um, he represents a wing of the party. OK, and in some ways he is, uh, you know, an earlier version of it or or represents a faction of the Republican Party 
that is, you know, definitely not dominant today in the Trump era, but was for a long time, um, you know, just sort of with a kind of traditional uh, business friendly stance, advocating low taxes, less regulation, aggressive foreign policy, anti-communism. Um, it's just there's a familiarity to it. And in some ways, he's kind of a last gasp of that. Um, I'm, you know, sort of struck by the way that he, he very much molded himself to fit that. Um, and he just saw that that's just, that's the Republican party he knew. It's the Republican party he grew up in. He talks a lot about obviously his father, George Romney, who I, you know, I, I, I don't know if he would put himself in the exact same faction as his father. His father, I think was, uh, somewhat more moderate or even liberal Republican at a time when that was still a plausible thing to be. Um, but, uh, Mitt was something of a version of that. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear how he talks about race and how he like, you know, is, is bothered by some of the racism he sees from, um, from some of the angrier Republican supporters. He's, uh, notably willing to take something of a, of a pro-police reform stance during the George Floyd protests and, and stand with protesters. Um, but, you know, in some ways he just, he really tries to mold himself as a very traditional, uh, you know, Reagan Bush style Republican. And even, you know, even tries to sort of hammer his, uh, his Mormonism into that. You know, that's it's an area where he struggles with. He recognizes he is not a traditional, you know, Christian Protestant evangelical at a time when that is very popular and really tries to portray his own faith in those terms um, to say, you know, I am one of you. And he he really, I think, is, is very successful at, you know, at becoming that sort of a Republican right at the time as, as that faction is is dying off or, or becoming a minority faction. I don't know. Is that your read? Kind of. I, I thought the faction piece is one of the pieces here where you have a kind of tension between telling the, the political story of Mitt Romney and making it a story about an individual and then telling a more sort of structural story about the Republican Party. There are a couple of things that jump out at me. One is that Romney has had a really fluid political career in a, a moment of sort of lack of fluidity in politics where he's kind of had to position himself in a lot of different a lot of different ways um, as a Massachusetts Republican. And so he gets flack about that uh, later on for having to moderate significantly as governor of Massachusetts. Um, and then, you know, moving states, right? <laughs> um, right. Moving, you know, he sort of like moves around in this, in this interesting way. And I have a couple, I guess, of, of observations about that. I mean, one is that, I think one of the things that McKay Coppins wants us to take away from this is that Mitt Romney does have a significant amount of in personal integrity. And I take that point. And certainly the things that he did during the Trump years were important. And also we see moments where he's sort of enjoying all the um, kind of, of uh, accolades he's getting from mainstream media and from Democrats, but is also kind of willing not to fully go along with that. So fine, we get idea that he has a lot of integrity but it somehow that becomes really um incompatible with this idea of authenticity and so romney i mean this goes back this is pre-trump this idea that romney isn't very authentic and that's you know one of the things that the book also covers is his 2012 bid and that was super interesting that romney is sort of like he never figures out 
I think how to how to present himself as authentic and it, you know that probably tells us more about what authenticity is in contemporary Republican politics and maybe in populist movements in general more than it tells us about Romney. Did that jump out of you at all? I mean, I, I see what you're talking about just because he is trying to reinvent himself a number of times uh, over the course of his life as, as portrayed in this book. And yes, one of them is like, how do I get elected as a Republican in Massachusetts? Then, you know, how do I govern? How do I work with a, a Democratic legislature in Massachusetts? And, you know, and just from we know from from the book and from history, he actually achieves that fairly well. Like he, he has like a pretty legitimate record of policy success there. And then it's like, how do I quickly adapt that to, you know, becoming the national Republican nominee uh, for president? Um, and so, yeah, that, you know, you can see how, okay, that undermines uh, what we might call authenticity. And particularly, he's like he's constantly reframing his stance on abortion, uh, his stance on a few different things, and just trying to emphasize different areas of it. And he gets criticized for, for flip-flopping, for not having a consistent set of beliefs. I have to say, I am still, and we, you and I have talked about this for a lot of years, and I am still struggling. I do not understand authenticity. Um, because there are plenty of characters in national politics who've changed their views on a lot of things and are considered authentic. And, like, I, you know, I'm coming back to Donald Trump, of course, who is often perceived as... Um, He's perceived as authentic in a way that Romney is not, and I'm not sure why that is. Both of them are rich people who just decided to run for president. Um, Trump is perceived as a rich guy who just happened, you know, he just happened to become rich, but he was always a regular guy, right? He was always Archie Bunker or Al Bundy or something like that, and just happens to have a ton of money and be famous. Um, is it because he's less polished? Is it because he's willing to say stuff that's racist? Um... Is, is this something that another person could do? Could Romney just casually say racist stuff or Mike Bloomberg or something like that and be accepted as a man of the people? Um, I'm not really sure, and I don't know quite how these things are constructed, um, but I, I also get sort of stuck in like an authenticity rabbit hole that I'm, I'm, I'm worried about not being able to claw myself out of. I don't know what your thought is. <laughs> Well, I mean, I've written on authenticity a bit, too, and I may be less skeptical about the concept than you, but I right now don't remember exactly why. Um, <laughs> and, okay, so I have to be perfectly honest that uh, I was not allowed to watch Married with Children, so I know very little about Al Bundy. Oh, so sorry. Um, <laughs> that's okay. My I, my mom probably wouldn't let me watch it now. Um <laughs> But yeah, that was. It's, but I it's did watch probably it. aged well in that it's it's as horrible then as it was now, but like still weirdly watchable. But yeah, weirdly compelling. <laughs> right. I did watch a lot of All in the Family when I was in high okay. school. It was on reruns, and I was kind of obsessed with it. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I don't think of authenticity as Archie Bunker's sort of signature characteristic. Um, but maybe it is. And here's sort of here's here's a hypothesis. What lands with people as far as authenticity is some sort of sense, and this is obviously going to be, I think my point here is it's obviously going to be theatrical. This is obviously going to be fabricated on some level. Mm -hmm. But it's a sense that people are saying things that they're, they're sort of engaging in costly speech. Um, and they're saying things that are going to hurt them politically in some sort of way. And obviously... 
you know, it doesn't exactly work that way. But I think that's sort of the idea. And Trump often, when he says really objectionable things, he often couches it that way. Sort of, the media is going to hate this. They're going to go after me, but I'm just going to say it. So I'm protecting our country. And so he sort of like sets it up as if it's costly. Um, and Mitt Romney does that at times, as we said. And, you know, I think he probably lost more than he gained voting for Trump's conviction in the two impeachment trials and also in in joining in the Black Lives Matter protests. I don't I mean he got he got a lot of accolades from people who don't have a lot they can actually give him. Um but he somehow isn't able because he's sort of maneuvered so much politically, he's somehow not able to to sort of present these things as politically costly or maybe because it, it you know, if, if the McKay Coffin account is to be believed, he's a little bit self-effacing. He's not showy. He has this sort of old money vibe to him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he's not willing to say, look, people went after me for this, but I did it anyway. Like, he doesn't really say that. It sounds like he said it to Coppins privately, um, but that's not really his political vibe. And so that... I think maybe is partly why he's able to kind of act with integrity, but never, never cash in on the authenticity. But maybe, I mean, I think, you know, the populism thing and the money thing are all just lurking all throughout this story. And one of the things that we find is, you know, Romney is coming up in a party that's increasingly populist and the kind of populist strain in American politics is probably what, what did him in, in 2012. Um, being depicting him as a sort of out of touch rich guy, and your question about well, why you know why is this not why does this stick to Romney in a way that doesn't stick to George W. Bush or Donald Trump? Um, I think I don't have a great answer to that, um, but I I want to say two other things about this Romney piece of the story. Um, one is you know you said you put him in the kind of Reagan Bush party, and I think that. The split starts happening around George W. Bush. And I don't think Romney is a George W. Bush politician. Um, or really a Reagan one. I don't... I think he's he's maybe an H.W. politician. Um, I think you're right. He's not as, as kind of markedly, you know, Northeastern liberal type as his dad. And his dad was from Michigan. But that was the sort of wing of his party. Um... I don't think he's he's quite the same as his dad, but I don't think he's exactly that kind of Republican. I think the 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 sort of split between Romney and the Republican Party began uh, before he before he ever even entered um, before he ever even entered politics. The other thing that I didn't really know about Mitt Romney is that he is what a kind of cerebral person he is. I just really never thought about it. Um, and the fact that he wanted to be an academic at one point in college, I think he would have been happier as an academic. Um, I think he would have been able to like overthink things and analyze things, which sounds like something he really enjoyed while also maybe having, um, some of the, the, you know, when this, when this career is good, it also is sort of fulfilling and you feel like you're doing something. And that's something that he was really searching for so before i listened to this book i listened to a couple podcasts with the author 
And one of the things Coppins likes to say in interviews is about is this sort of theme of Romney constantly trying to justify things to himself. And that is obviously a very Trump-rooted story. That did not strike me as the more interesting story. The more interesting story was Romney's search to do something meaningful. I found this interesting. I also found this incredibly annoying. Because sort of him constantly being like, what do I do that has meaning? I have all this money. I don't really need to work for money. So how will I find meaning in my life? And I was just like, I'm sorry. Uh, cry me a river. Is that not relatable so one... for you? <laughs> <laughs> right? No. Uh, I'm like doing the paperwork to get paid for some freelancing that I did. And like, you know, like, I'm so sorry, Mitt Romney. I guess I'll just have to run the Olympics. But... Um, it really comes out in that part of the story about him running the, the, the Salt Lake City Olympics is like, then he wants to run for governor of Massachusetts or like reactions. He actually enjoys working at Bain Capital. Um, and the way that Coppins tells the story, at least, is it's like Romney isn't enjoying this because he's like putting people out of work. He enjoys it because it's really analytical and it's like a hard problem he gets to solve. Um, but, um, he also sort of knows that it lacks a higher purpose and he can't make peace with that. He can't just be like, this is interesting and I'm making a ton of money. It, he needs that that third leg of the stool. And so he's, const- he's constantly searching for something that will be more meaningful. Um, and like I said, that it was interesting to me. It was profoundly irritating. <laughs> Wondering if you had any of these reactions or if I'm just... Frankie, maybe I'm a populist. Anyway, I'll stop <laughs> okay, you, you've covered a bunch of really interesting topics, and I actually want to jump in on all of these. Um, one of them, like you start off with about authenticity, and I think you you had a really good concept of authenticity as some way involving risk. Um, you know, people who are willing to stand up for something, people who are willing to say things that are uh, not necessarily politically convenient. And what's interesting, like. The areas where Romney has probably taken the most risk have been in and around 2020. Um, his stance on Black Lives Matter, um, his, you know, his being, you know, the only Republican to vote to convict Trump in his first impeachment trial, you know, basically like the first senator ever to vote to convict a president of his own party. Um, and his, you know, his really his very clearly struggling with that and that that speech and then, of course, um, his responses, you know, his, his reactions to January 6th and his, his impeachment votes then. Um, he has not run for office since 2020, right? Um, the, the last time he ran for anything was 2018, and he's not going to run again. Uh, so he's never really had a chance to politically capitalize on all this. I mean, in a number of ways, like, yeah, he is seen, I think, as probably a you know person with, he, he gained a lot of gravitas from those moments. And I think is seen very seriously uh, by that and was, has, you know, gained a lot of respect from from the punditry world, from Democrats, not from Republicans who are really not interested in that. Um, I don't know that he could probably win re-election in Utah if he really wanted, but it would be it would be a struggle. And it doesn't sound like it's something he's particularly interested in. Um, so, you know, he I think he sort of lost the chance to, to capitalize on this authenticity that he's gained. Um, but, uh, it's all, I think in some ways fairly recent. Um, I did want to, you had talked about also sort of which wing of the party or which faction of the party represents. And 
One thing that was interesting to me, uh, you know, another another book along these lines that has come out recently is is Liz Cheney's recent book. Um, and I'm interested in the sort of the parallels between Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney because they're both the children of important Republican politicians um, who have sought to sort of carve their own path in politics. And they're also very much on the outs from the Republican Party um, as a result of 2020. And, and and their reactions to it. Um, I don't know that I, well, let's see. It, it, I don't know that I would have put George Romney and Dick Cheney in the same wing of the party. Um, no. And I don't know, I sort of struggle whether Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney are in the same wing of the party, uh, other than they're both the not Trump part right now. Um, but they would, I think, probably have defined themselves very differently. Cheney, much harder right on a lot of social issues. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I'm sort of curious where you come in on that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really cop-out answer. But my kind of answer to that is that this is one of the areas where you see Trump's most profound influence, actually, is that is that the, the party's factions have reorganized around him. And... That yeah, I, I think that's right. I would not have put Dick Cheney and George Romney in the same wing of the party. Um I also you know, I might have put Dick Cheney in the same wing of the party as George H. W. Bush. And I see that there's a sort of faction of the party that they're very conservative on the things that they care about, and in particular this sort of hawkish on foreign policy, but they're they sort of stop short on on the social issues, and they're just not kind of willing to go there, which is different than someone like Romney, uh, like George Romney, who was a, who was much more vocal on on these issues. And that wing of the party, I would say, is like kind of dropped out in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. In part, in part because of the kind of issue opportunities. So. Um, so, like any self-respecting academic, I've now brought this around to the book that I'm currently writing. Um, and essentially, you know, one of my arguments is, is like, you have this build-up to, to civil rights in the 60s and the enforcement of that, which is sort of where, where George Romney really came in, um, the implementation of, of civil rights policies. Um, and then we develop a politics where we don't really talk about it and kind of like, there's a lot of ways to push race off the stage and and be conservative on race in ways that are sort of under the radar. Um, and so there aren't a lot of George Romney opportunities for, for politicians between, say, like 1980 and um, 2008 or so. And then and then I think there are those opportunities in, in this sort of Trump years. And Romney did sort of take those. Um particularly in the Black Lives Matter. But interestingly, one thing I really wanted to hear more about in the book, and it gets sort of thrown away, is his his 2012 line about no one's ever had to look for my birth certificate. Yeah. Um, In the book, it's kind of like, he said it was a throwaway line. He didn't really think about it. And maybe that's true. But it's that's awfully weird for someone who overthinks, you know, it seems like he orders a salad and he thinks about it. <laughs> Um, in great yeah, detail. That was a super loaded line, and uh, yeah, it's possible he wasn't he he didn't really mean it in the same way that Trump might have meant it, but um, but, but it was. What is the alternative meaning right. to that? <laughs> this is really bothering me. Um, 
and the book did not help me with that and it's like it really doesn't it really doesn't fit in with this otherwise this trajectory where romney actually shows in in the trump years that he sort of does have that and it may be that he comes up now i'm going to contradict myself but he comes up in this sort of reagan bush um era of the party in which you can sort of say racist stuff that's not really racist uh or it's, it is racist but it's not um sort of overtly racist right there's a constant dog whistling all the time sometimes very loudly um is 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 a kind of standard part of republican politics and so maybe romney um thought about that more it did sound like you know he thought about it more he didn't stand behind what he said but it's just like what you know what alternative meaning could that possibly have had anyway i am i am just ranting now i'm like alternating between ranting and promoting my own book so i'm going to turn it back to you to bring us back to mitt romney and the gop I mean, yeah, I want to actually jump in on that stuff on, you know, particularly on him, him saying that line, uh, uh, you know, about his birth certificate. One of the things that I think that I enjoyed in this book was his description of being a presidential candidate. Um, and, you know, I, I've had a number of arguments, online arguments with people about like what profession is uh you know is the most explained to by other people who are not in that profession about what you're supposed to do professionally and like obviously like political scientist is one of them where a lot of non-political scientists say well this is what you should be working on and this is what's going on in the world um but of course like elementary school teachers get this a lot uh historians get this a lot um, th there's a lot of people who get their job explained to them but presidential candidate is certainly up there and he talks in this book about, you know, just going from when he's running in 2012, you know, doing thousands of different, you know, fundraisers and speeches and where he's saying basically the same thing from day to day. And people come up to him afterwards at the rope line and say, here's what you should be saying. Here's how, to, you know, because he's trailing Obama by like two or three points all year. It's like, well, here's what will put you on top. And, you know, what's he going to do? He's going to say, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I'll definitely consider your thoughts, but like he is in, and I, I really developed some sympathy for, you know, for him and for anyone who's willing to do this, to be a candidate and just be explained to by a lot of rich people who are just entitled to be in that room. Um, and it, I'm sure it gets incredibly annoying. And, you know, just coming back to what you were saying, like he is clearly giving just a lot of speeches and has occasional moments for some off the cuff stuff. And he's a presidential candidate and he, you know, he wants to fit into the room. Um, he, you know, and he, he sort of recognizes, you know, just listening to what people are saying. He recognizes what people are applauding to and what they're not. And, you know, he's just sort of honing a message over time. And I'm sure he could see to himself, you know, just see at some point, Oh, you know what? If I throw in a little word about the birth certificate, they'll they'll love that. They'll just lap that up and then I can move on to what I really want to talk about. Without, you know, I'm not defending it because clearly he's smart enough to realize what messaging is carried there. Um, but also he says so much stuff and goes to so many of these events that it wouldn't necessarily like in the same way that his comment about 47% of uh of the country you know uh you know he's not responsible for them they're dependent on welfare we don't i'm not concerned about them um they don't pay taxes when right that when confronted with that he didn't even remember saying it and i i i found that plausible just to 
because he says so much at so many different events and then realizing oh that was really loaded uh i probably shouldn't have said that and that is surprising in some sense because you're right he totally does get in his head about stuff and i don't know how much he thinks ahead but he clearly in hindsight he thinks a lot about what he did say um and you know like you're right he does have sort of a, a good sense of being an academic and that uh clearly he does worry about things and you know he he wonders about like did i say this right and am, am i right for this moment and you know did i screw that up and you know he'd be great in that sense um you know professor who stays up late at night worrying he offended the one student in the back of the room who wasn't even paying attention um but yeah if uh you know if you and i were giving you know the same lectures we give you know for for 10 years and then it turned out someone was recording those and it showed up on fox news or something like that like oh wow i, I said that huh okay yeah i probably yeah i could see how that would be dumb i mean for sure i certainly like you know, as someone who talks for a living at some, you know, gargantuan percentage of that is going to be stupid. Um, but, okay, so I see this in two ways. I see this in two possible ways. On the one hand, here is here is my no, Seth, that interpretation is full of shit trajectory, is essentially all he does through this whole period is think about how different he is from your average or from, cert from certain factions of the party, but from a faction of the party that's increasingly just the party. Um, I actually wanted to get your take on how much he hates going to the Values Voter Summit. Um, I want to return to that, because I want to also say, okay, so that's my one... On the one hand, I like all he thinks about is how he's not like these mouth breathers in his party. And um, On the other hand, there is this dynamic that I think is super interesting, which is that in the years following George W. Bush... I think the kind of Jerry Ford Republican wing, I'll call them that, Ford was still around then, um, saw, their, saw their differences with the more populist wing in religious terms. Um, as far as sort of the role of religion in politics, maybe some theological differences um, with, with evangelical faith that I'm not qualified to really talk about. But, you know, those types of differences and the, and the way that then faith informed these very conservative social positions. And I think that was really um, seen up up through the Obama year, maybe starting with Reagan, up through the Obama years as a sort of significant rift in the party. So it was in these religious terms. And during the Obama presidency, this is another argument that I make in my um, in-progress book, is that race becomes really salient and we're... As a country, we're so out of practice and we don't have the language to talk about all these different racial concepts that are now coming to the fore. Um, and so it's possible that that this was the one thing Romney didn't think about deeply. Um, he was really in his head about how different he was from these values voters, summit people. Um, but, you know, the Obama thing was just like, well, you know, they know, like you said, he sort of just knew that they would love that line or whatever but I, I can't i can't square it with someone who is clearly attuned to these issues has clearly grown up influenced by his father who is attuned to these issues um who is clearly smart enough to sort of realize the george floyd mo moment and do the right thing 
And like that somehow in that moment he didn't know what he was doing. And yet we just don't have another explanation. So those are my two my two thoughts about that. But I do want to, to get your take on uh, the values voters uh, issue. So, okay, this is all really interesting. And there's one point on this, like, uh, I wanted to get at where I think he, there's a lot of him misinterpreting um, what is going on on the far right, what is going on among populists, uh, among the Tea Party, um, where I he may be missing the sort of radical message, missing some of the racial context for it um, when he hears uh, stuff about birth certificate. And like the, the one thing that sort of stood out to me, like he, there's a quote in there uh, I'll read uh, where uh, Romney was talking about Tea Party activists in 2009, and he was trying to understand what was going on because he, he got the sense, this is an important thing going on in my party. Um, I'm trying to figure it out. And as he says, uh, I'm quoting here, I listened to the words they spoke instead of looking behind it and saying, oh, these are people that are basically angry. They weren't interested in policy. They didn't care about the budget or the deficit. They just wanted someone who was going to blow everything up. Okay. So there's a quote there where I think he's just he's just kind of misinterpreting, I think, what's going on. And I think that there's a sense that he might have been misinterpreting what concerns about birth certificate meant and not seeing the racial context there. And again... He's someone smart enough that he should have. Um, but I think there was a fair amount of him not wanting to see that. Um, and just sort of saying, oh, this is just a this is just a funny, quirky thing. And all the Democrats who are saying that this is a racist thing are overreacting because they say everything is racist um, and, and just not maybe getting the full sense of it. Also, that's at a point where he is still finding Donald Trump as kind of an amusing sideshow. Um, and even occasionally a friend who says some dumb things once in a while, um, but not necessarily as like the direction that the party is going or threat to democracy, at least not at that point. Um, right. Yeah. Go, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I was just getting that in there, but like the values voters stuff, excuse me, the value voters stuff is I think a really interesting part of this book. And I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. What really struck me about this is how much he does not like campaigning in Iowa. Um, there's parts of running for president he seems to like, um, but uh, he, I think, you know, rightly recognizes that, you know, that, you know, to run for president, you have to campaign for the Iowa caucuses, even if you don't win. And to do that, you have to try to appeal to a lot of evangelical Christians because they really dominate the Iowa caucuses on the Republican side. Um, and he recognizes that as like, these are not my people and they don't like me. Like, you know, if, if there's one faction of the party that really is distrustful of him, it's evangelical Christians who basically see him as the Antichrist. Um, and so he has to spend a lot of time, you know, just trying to mollify them, having conversations where on the surface people are fairly polite, but then say like, you know, we just, we think you're, you're complete danger. You're a violation of everything we believe in. You're um, not a real Christian. You're not a real Christian. He doesn't like that. And I, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to that view. Um, so honestly, it surprised me that he ended up doing as well as he did, you know, coming very close to winning in 2012, um, in, in the Iowa caucuses. Um, but it's clearly, you know, like that's, Within the party, that's kind of his kryptonite at that point. 
It's, uh, you know, they, they, you know, they, they will just never fully accept him. And in some ways, it's kind of striking that, you know, of course, by the time of the general election, he does as well among evangelicals as Donald Trump will later do, as George W. Bush did. You know, it's, it's again, a party story. People rally around their 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 nominee. But at least at the time, um, you know, that group is is really uh, distrustful of him and, and he of them. And he really just um, clearly hates having to, you know, not just to have, be in the party with them, but having to suck up to them, you know, and, and having to try and win them over. One of the things, and this is somewhat related, you know, because uh, factional stories can get a little messy here, particularly when we're thinking about, you know, does he represent a faction of the party or are we just really thinking about just Mitt Romney here? Um, I sort of wonder, like, you know, what distinguishes him from a lot of other Republicans? Ultimately, in the end of it is, like, he has the money to buy his way out of some of the stuff. That is, um, uh, and this may be a little bit of a departure from our earlier conversation, but, you know, by the Trump era, you know, particularly post-2020, a lot of Republicans clearly feel threatened. Uh, and, you know, this is something that comes up a lot is, is, uh, is that there's a number of Republicans in Congress who are clearly terrified of some of their supporters. They're terrified of Donald Trump's supporters. And they're worried about harassment. They're worried about their personal safety. They're worried about their lives. Um, and he has the ability to simply hire personal protection for $5,000 a day that a lot of other Republicans can't do. Um, and he's just, he's willing to do that. So, uh, I'm sort of curious how much of his faction is just that he can buy his way out of it and others can't. Right. That'll buy you some, some yeah. integrity. I don't, I mean, okay. I had a couple of different, I had a couple of different thoughts about this, about the, the conversations about standing up to Trump in 20, like kind of throughout 2020. So we have the first impeachment we have the election, we have the big lie, and eventually we have the second impeachment, right? That's sort of our, our trajectory there. Um, and early on, when this book was first coming out, and there were some interviews about it, or I guess there was a big piece in The Atlantic that talked about Republicans being afraid for their personal safety, you, I think, actually had a really interesting observation about that. Which I is doubt that, that, but okay, go on. <laughs> um, the Republican, well, I think it was you. Um, the Republicans... <laughs> who are saying those things are also saying them to an audience, right? Even if the audience was just their, their colleagues, but you know, I, I do think not to discount real fear and the real danger of, um, of these people. But I think it is also the case that Trump has throughout his time in the Republican party been a very convenient sort of figure because he will always be an outsider from whom people can distance themselves. Even, even you know, as that becomes implausible in different ways. Um, those who need to distance themselves from him strategically can in a way that they wouldn't be able to do with a more establishment figure. And that's, I mean, you see that throughout. And I think that is really the untold kind of Trump story is that he lets people in the Republican Party enjoy the fruits of his voters and um, the energy that he can whip up among them and then and then say, well, we don't have anything to do with those racist comments, those anti-immigration comments, that election denialism. And then, well, we're afraid of his supporters sort of fits into that. 
Um, I, I realize it's sort of easy for me to say, because I'm not a Republican member of Congress who's at risk from these people. On the other hand, I'm also not a person who's at zero risk from these people. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I do see that there are dangerous elements, um, but I also see that this is a convenient way to, um, to sort of rhetorically distance yourself. Do you remember saying this or did someone else say this? No, no, I think I did say that. Yeah. And that, uh, that vaguely sounds smart now, now that I <laughs> hear my words spoken back to me. Um, but yeah, and that's actually been, it's related to what, what's a fairly interesting thing about the Trump era is that they, for Republicans, Trump's love can be bought fairly cheaply. Um, you know, if, if you think about the things that, say, Lindsey Graham said about Donald Trump back in 2016 when he was running against him um, and all the warnings he issued against him and, and said some very nasty personal things, it didn't take that much for uh, for Graham to buy his way back in Trump's favor um, to just, you know, ultimately, you know, bend the knee publicly. And that was just what Trump wanted. And then it was cool. And that's actually a fairly fascinating series of points in this book where, uh, you know, Romney said a number of very rough things about Trump back in 2016. Um, and I would love to actually talk a little bit more about 2016 when we get a moment. But, um, but uh, ultimately, Trump, uh, you know, arrange, after winning, he arranges for a meeting with Romney to discuss being Secretary of State or some other job. And uh, it's... I guess, awkward, but reasonably cordial. And then it's made clear, you know, uh, Trump's people tell Romney, okay, here's what you have to do. Like, you basically have to just publicly bend the knee. Uh, you have to say, okay, actually, he's going to be a really great president, and I was wrong before. And it's just be one statement. Um, and then you can be Secretary of State, and you can do whatever you want as Secretary of State. Um, and uh, Romney is clearly not willing to do that. And he just he found that like no that I do have some sense of integrity I'm not going to do that, um, and for a lot of other Republicans it was you know not so costly. Um, they didn't they didn't have a as big a problem with doing that. So like there was a path for him to do it, and he deliberately chose not to. Um, which I guess we could call that integrity, right? Like um, <laughs> yeah, or I mean that? we yeah. could. No, I mean, I'm not going to go to the mat to disagree with that. Yeah. It also, we'll just never know what his motivation was. Um, I remember, like, I remember that dinner and the photos circulating on Twitter and whatever, but it also seemed like there, you know, was this sort of shit show aversion going on there where, you know, would you want to be Trump's secretary of state? I mean, he didn't he fire Rex Tillerson on Twitter? He constantly publicly undermined his secretaries of state in ways that that, again, could it, like really get you killed, right? You're on difficult diplomatic mission with a country that we don't necessarily have great relations with, and then Trump under publicly undermines you like that could really go wrong. Um, well, and we that could also have been his Romney point. didn't have that in that information in late 2016. I mean, like, I think he probably could have guessed that's the way things would have gone. Um, that he wouldn't have had the autonomy he wanted, or he would be constantly getting undercut by the president on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, I don't know, it's at least plausible that like secretary of state would be a pretty cool job. I guess. Um, I feel like this. I'm going to get out over my skis on like the details of being Secretary of State here. We're going to start talking foreign policy and no one's going to ever listen to this again. But uh, I mean, and you know, the way that Trump, I think being Secretary of State. Okay, I do know this. I do teach the American presidency. Um, being Secretary of State is very delicate. 
because you have to speak on behalf of the administration and you have to do so sometimes in situations that are really ambiguous you have to be really good at reading the room um and and it's very difficult under the circumstance in which you assume that the president is a normal person um and understands the job and understands the stakes of national security and i think one of the things that people were concerned about and particularly in this sort of anti-Trump Republican faction, one of the things they've always been concerned about is he doesn't really get the stakes of um, national security. Although I take your point, I take your point that we we didn't know, you know, I'm applying a lot of hindsight. We didn't know some of this stuff in late 2016. But anyway, get, go to, let's okay. go back to things we do know something about. Yeah, let's true. talk about the 2016 election. Okay. Kick us off. Yeah, and what struck me in this book, talking about 2016 is so like my whole impression about like trump winning the nomination that year is that like of course not a lot of people took that seriously back in 2015 he was seen as the sideshow i will give you julia credit for <laughs> seeing trump's nomination coming before a lot of other people did including me um but uh what's going on is that like you have a lot of prominent people in the republican party uh clearly expressing some concern about Trump, sometimes very strongly. Um, you have the National Review putting out an entire issue about why Trump should not be nominated. Um, and you have uh, some prominent Republicans, including Mitt Romney, including Paul Ryan, uh, Lindsey Graham, and others saying, uh, you know, this man is a danger. Um, he will mess up our party. Um, you please do not vote for him in the primaries and caucuses. Instead, vote for one of these other 16 wonderful people. And they never really, and we're seeing this today as well, there's no attempt to consolidate an anti-Trump vote. Um, what really strikes me about this uh, in, in this book is that Romney is thinking about this strategy a lot. And he's talking with people about, okay, if, you know, it's, it's getting late in the game, like I, yeah, Iowa and New Hampshire have already happened. Trump is doing reasonably well. How do we stop him at this point? And uh, he's trying to figure out what exactly his role in this is, in, in this whole process is. Like, should he jump in as a candidate? Should he just issue public statements? Um, what, what ways can they coordinate? Should he back someone else? And he comes up with some really interesting but very intricate strategy of, very strongly publicly criticizing Trump and then saying, here's what you do. You vote for the person who's doing the second best in the polls after Trump in your particular state. So if that's if that's Ted Cruz, vote for him. If that's Carly Fiorina, vote for her. Um, and it is a uh, it's a strategy that I don't think anyone else particularly gets behind. I mean, basically, like every other Republican has some other strategy for how they're going to stop Donald Trump. And not surprisingly, none of them work um, because there's really nothing coordinated. But he had something like a plan there. And he was actually, he, he, there was, a, you know, some attempt to think through this and think about, you know, like, a, like it's, it's not just him not voting for Trump or him saying, I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump. He recognizes he's the most recent uh, nominee of the party, you know, but, at least ceremonially, he's the head of the Republican Party at that point and has zero control over it. Um, but he's trying to come up with some sort of a direction for it, some sort of way to control uh, the party's presidential nomination. And it's both fascinating and like kind of tragic, right? I mean, it's just it, he's ultimately unable to influence the party at all, as far as I can tell. 
Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting kind of tale of that. I know it's it's 2016, and you're thinking about these strategies. All these business degrees, all these people obsessed with economics. Not a single one has a iota of a fucking clue about how math works. So that's you know that that's a thing. But um, well, okay. But on so, that, like, I mean, I guess like a question for the. Was there a way to stop it? Like, could like, is there a strategy that they just failed to arrive on, or was you know was this just hopeless right. to begin with? Yeah, I feel like we've been fighting about this for we, eight yes. years now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, and the day is young, but yes, <laughs> right? Okay, you've goaded me into fighting about this. Is worse than the Newsom DeSantis debate. Um, the I have three reactions to this, not one of which answers that question. Good. <laughs> um, but. Okay, and now I forgot what they were. Okay, so either it'll come to me or it won't. Um, but now you see what my poor students have to deal with. Who my I had them for the day we talked about twenty sixteen. They watched part of Romney's speech and we read the National Review, like the editorial piece about Trump. Um, so okay, I want to actually link this back to twenty twelve. I think the book didn't didn't analytically link 2012 and 2016 as much as I would have liked. Um, which is that, you know, I found so fascinating in 2012 when, um, what's his name, Stuart Stevens says to Mitt Romney that, you know, we're going to have to steal this. And this is sort of not naturally your party. Um, that was and so yeah. that was interesting. I'm like, uh, I had a lot of thoughts about that. But, you know, one of them is that by 2012, it's pretty clear that, that Romney's kind of not the face of the Republican Party. And the, yet, as you say, he's sort of, he's nominally the leader of the party and he has zero influence there. Um, I guess the second thing I have to say is sort of an answer to your question, which is that it's not Romney's fault that our primary system is a trash fire. And so, you know, his, like, vote for the second best person in your state or whatever is like, okay... Fine, you have a very complicated system, and so you're going to give people complicated instructions. Um, not that that was ever going to win, but at least it was, like, a strategy. Um, I mean, I think a lot of this... Uh, I think a lot of the problem in 2016, attempting to answer your question before I say the thing that I want to say, um, that I think is more important than that question, um, <laughs> is that... Um, <laughs> And I think it's actually also riffing on something you said back in 2016. But anyway, the the Republican Party's only chance of stopping Trump was was well before the voting started in 2016. And I think that in, it sort of, if you look at the math that was should have been possible then, you should have been able to come up with a candidate that was more appealing because there were a number of times where you know, you could two candidates together were beating Trump. Right? Trump Trump did not have this sort of overwhelming support that he has now. Um, he did not have a, a majority in the way he does now. So it should have been possible. But they would have had to do it in, like, September. Um, to give Scott Walker a modicum of credit there, he did actually drop out of the race for president and say, we need, now is the time to coordinate. Um, and then nobody did it. So I think that would have been the time. I think by the time you're talking about trying to game the voting, it is, it is too late. Um... For a candidate like Trump, who is who is success, who is very consistently successful at um, at gaining pluralities, and has the people who like him really like him, um, 
and in a party that has uh, a very winner-take-all oriented system. So I think it was possible. Um, I think Romney got in the game too late. I think he wasn't the only one who got in the game too late. The last thing I want to say, again, I think I'm pretty sure I'm riffing on something you said back in 2016, which is that uh, you wrote a piece about it, maybe, because some of the big national security people came out against Trump, but they stopped short of endorsing Hillary Clinton. And maybe it was um, Bob Gates. It was it was a pretty prominent national security Republican. Do you remember this? Um, I mean, it was a very clear and obvious point that you made, which was the way to stop Trump is to endorse Hillary Clinton. And like that's sort of the thing with Romney, too, is like if a prominent Republican who has respect among this sort of wing of the party, small as it may be, Romney, Paul Ryan had come out and fucking endorsed Hillary Clinton. That would that would probably made a difference. And I mean, we kind of have a good counterfactual of that because that wing of the Republican Party did coordinate and campaign for Joe Biden mm-hmm. in 2020. And they are, you know, their their views are not everyone's views. I showed my students some Lincoln Project videos and they thought they were ridiculous. <laughs> um, but people who were these sort of institutionalists, they're kind of temperamentally conservative, they're fiscally conservative, they're patriotic, um, their social views may be kind of all over the map. Those sorts of people um, are, you know, are, are are out there for the taking, but they needed to be coordinated in 2016, and they didn't really have a prominent thought leader who was a, a real Republican telling them, like, just hold your nose and vote for this person we've been saying horrible things about for 25 years. Um, that's what needed to happen. Romney could have done it, didn't. Um, and so I, that that's my read on that done ranting now no that's a good rant um yeah yeah, i think you're right and i i think that is sort of a a a striking difference about you know between 2016 and 2020 um where you do have a number of conservatives who who uh, anti-trump and it's it's not a large number but there's some Um, and they're not just anti-trump they're willing to say vote for joe biden yeah 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 yeah, they're willing to say, I, I cannot vote with my party as long as Trump is in charge of it. And I will, on this particular, on the presidential ballot line, I will vote for the Democrat. Um, and yes, that puts them on the outs with their par- with their party, but, you know, no more so than a lot of other things would. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've ended up talking, you know, in some of my, my research, I've ended up talking. There's a number of people in New Hampshire, fairly prominent Republicans in that state. Um, who ended up uh, publicly endorsing Joe Biden and actually campaigning with him. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know how much of that is, well, I didn't do this in 2016 and I really should have, or if this, or if it's more like, I can do this for Joe Biden, but I can't do this for Hillary Clinton because of everything that's baked into Hillary Clinton. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there has been some of that. And you're right. And Mitt Romney did not take that step. I think he mentions that uh, in both 2016 and 2020, he voted. He wrote in his wife uh, on the presidential line, um, which I don't know. That, I don't think that's a particularly courageous stance. But at the same time, like by the time you're actually voting on the general election ballot, like his really important influence has long since passed. Right. You know, his his moment to be influential is back at the nomination stage. And um, I, I think he, he 
I don't know if he did everything he could back in 2016, but he certainly gave it a shot, um, and it, it really came up short. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's basically the the conclusion that I've come to about a lot of these about a lot of these folks. And this was the thing that actually was ringing in my head throughout the book about about Romney, because it's always like, oh, he's out of step with his party. He's out of step with his party. He can't believe his party is going this direction. Like he's ruminating about this for 20 years. Like this part, this is the direction the party is going in. Just either use your money and influence and clout and try to start a third party knowing it's not going to go anywhere. But then eventually one of the two parties, uh, maybe both, um, I think are going to crack up um, and are going to have to transform in their institutional form. I think that that's going to happen. And so Romney could have been the person to bear the collective action cost of starting that and maybe not seeing it to fruition, but really thinking like, you know, like a, a someone with some, um interest in innovating or just be a fucking democrat and and align yourself with people like joe manchin um or other people and just you know you if you're gonna be an iconoclast in one party you might as well be an iconoclast in the other party i don't know if i'm using that word right but might be like that was basically by the end i'm like uh so i was so i was too busy being angry about this tendency with mitt romney to um (laughs) To, to look up my words but that's yeah well what's actually i'm gonna think about this in a slightly broader sense like you know think about the trajectory of the republican party from you know maybe 2000 forward um where it's clearly it's clearly becoming more conservative on a number of dimensions um the populist wing is becoming stronger and stronger and uh and you know george w bush i think is you know, he's a good match for where the party was at that time. Like he's, you know, he's able to a lot of different factions. He is good enough with, with all of them. Like the evangelicals are comfortable with him because he speaks their language. Foreign policy establishment likes him because he's plenty hawkish. Um, you know, he's, and you know, he's plenty, he can, he can talk to the good old boys. Like he's got a lot of it. Um, Absolutely. and then, uh, they're becoming, but they, they want more. They keep trying to push more and more. And somehow they end up with John McCain and Mitt Romney, which is kind of fascinating because they are, they are iconoclasts. They are um, in some ways not where the party is. Like they are substantially more moderate than a lot of that growing wing of the party wants, um, but are increasingly, you know, for a number of reasons, like, McCain was well situated to win that nomination in 2008, in part because, you know, he ran pretty well in 2000 and then moved right on a lot of things. But um, but also, like, you know, this is something that I've pushed a lot on uh, over a Tusk, that the, uh, you know, this wing of the party was repeatedly told, yes, we care about what you believe in, but if we want to win the presidency, we have to, you know, elect, we have to nominate someone who can win. We have to go electability. Um, and these are people who are more broadly acceptable to the elect to the general electorate. Um, and yeah, McCain had some of that. I don't think any Republican could have won in 2008, you know, in the middle of the great recession. Um, and Romney had some of that, but then he was running against, uh, you know, a reasonably popular incumbent. That's always going to be a hard, hard row. Um, so, but what it basically has is that they're willing to moderate on these two candidates and they lose. Um, 
And so at that point, you know, I think it was the Onion's headline that, like, right after Romney loses, that, you know, the leading nominee for 2016 is a white hot ball of rage. Um, and that was, yeah, uh, that's that's what they got <laughs> at that point. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes good sense. I wrote about that a little bit early in 2016, too, like, when it was becoming apparent that Trump was ascendant, was kind of like, I mean, again, it's sort of obvious in retrospect, but um it you know bears it bears spelling out the topic we've both written a lot about which is the importance of election interpretation that these two losses um probably shaped some of the republican strategy on that but it but it's very but 2012 i think 2012 is really understudied and i i have i have uh contemplated writing a 2012 election book i have not committed to this path forward but um I'm currently uh one book at a time julia but um you know i think that's a really interesting it's clearly a kind of turning point because if you believe the, the story in the um in this coppins account if you believe that story and the the people that he quotes which are not just romney um the gop is sort of already um has already gone off in this other direction and yet it's these candidates and so it's you know it's it is um this sort of thinking about whether the base of the party is becoming increasingly kind of fundamentally incompatible with with the sort of median voter of the country and then 20 the lesson of 2016 is the median voter of the country doesn't matter as long as you can do an electoral college strategy i think that maybe is the evolution of the thinking i think um i want to I want to move us along to our, our finale question, if that's all right. Um, the the question that, that I kept thinking about was really about um, kind of moving to Trump's impact on the party. Is Romney the Republican whose kind of trajectory has been changed the most by Trump? And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, it's an interesting question um, because, you know, we just read this book about Mitt Romney and Donald Trump is in a lot of it, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You can't tell Mitt Romney's story without Donald Trump. Um, at the same time, like, you know, by the time Trump is a prominent political figure, Mitt Romney has already run and lost for president. Like, and, you know, following the way that people used to do things, <laughs> when you lose for president, you don't run again. Um, so... You know, there's a chance probably he runs for Senate, whether Trump is president or not. Um, and uh, but I don't know that his I'd say his life has been very substantially affected by Donald Trump. I'd say his life has been threatened numerous times by Donald Trump. Um, I don't know that his career trajectory has changed all that much. Um, I think he'd be probably in a similar place. But it is interesting to think about, like, Whose, you know, whose career has been the most affected by Donald Trump? Um, Republican edition. Uh, yeah, Republican specifically. Um, I mean, I, you can make an argument that like Lindsey Graham, um, you know, the death of John McCain and the rise of Donald Trump changed him a lot. Um, but again, still be a senator. Um, you know, uh, I, I think there's a, you know... There's a world in which Scott Walker or Jeb Bush is president today, if not for Donald Trump. Um, Mike Pence, I think, would have had a very different trajectory if not for Donald Trump. You know, I'm also like, you know, I think about this question. I also think about the number of people who Trump has tried to kill 
like literally, like, you know, like his supporters have gone after Mitt Romney, have gone after Mike Pence, um, you know, Trump, you know, basically, you know, tried to kill Chris Christie and Joe Biden with COVID, um, you know, like, but did not succeed, uh, you know, I would say fortunately. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm curious, like, how would how would you answer this question? Is is Romney the, you know, the number one Republican affected by Donald Trump? Um, and I think maybe. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a sort of le- yes leaning maybe sort of or maybe leaning yes. I don't know. I don't know anymore. Um, it's interesting that you bring up Christie because I think Christie is in a sort of similar boat to Romney, which is that it's very difficult to define yourself as a moderate Republican northeastern governor in this period of, as I said, sort of lack of coalition fluidity. Um, and, you know, Romney was another person, or excuse me, Christie was another person who, like, took a lot of flack for appearing with Barack Obama because he, dare, he dared to seek federal disaster relief. Um, and I think that Trump has also given Christie some definition. But I don't I don't know a lot about, about Chris Christie as a person, but it doesn't seem like he is as, as, as much in, the, in his head seeking a purpose as, as Romney. Um, and for Romney, this is what really jumped out at me, is that the other contender for this award for me is, is either George W. Bush, whose post-presidency, I think, has been dramatically rewritten around, um, around the, the Trump comparison. Um, which is something I think needs maybe deeper thought, but I think that that's a sort of a thing that has happened. Um, and then the sort of second place is all of the Trump style Republicans whose careers have been launched around, around Trump. So Ron DeSantis is maybe an example of that, but it's sort of, you know, um, Josh Hawley type people, but their careers are, you know, it's not clear exactly what, um, what some of the next chapters will, will bring and they may not um, you know be terribly influential in the long run or they'll be incredibly influential we don't know um, but for Romney it seems to me like if the story of Romney's political career is seeking a purpose and trying to trying to make his political career mean something in this context of having to be very nimble and fluid and ideologically moderate and temperamentally moderate. And it's like, okay, he runs against Ted Kennedy. And that is a very like purposey element to it. When he runs against Ted Kennedy is like Ted Kennedy is profligate drunk. Um, it's not just a policy disagreement. That actually, um, that actually cracked me up that he thought he could beat Ted Kennedy because there was, there were concerns that Ted Kennedy was a drunken womanizer. Um, right. like, wow, where'd you get that memo? That's amazing. Okay, go on. But <laughs> right, yeah, in, in 1994. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, um, right. But it's the whole thing. I think is very revealing about Romney's search for purpose, where he's like, who who is objectionable? Um, and the it you know has it's Massachusetts has a little witch hunt vibe. Um, and then he's governor, and he actually, like you said, does some some significant things as governor. It's like it's not enough. Um, and he, you know, he's really looking for this purpose. And Donald Trump gives him a purpose, and so that for me is like the sort of moral of the story is is not about Romney justifying himself. It's about Romney looking for this and then um, finding it in having Donald Trump as a foil. And I think that's also maybe partly the answer to my question about why doesn't Romney just change parties? Because being Joe Manchin is not a, like a a purpose filled political stance, right? It's a pragmatic stance. 
Um, and it's maybe it has this sort of I'm going to keep the party from going off the rails sort of thing, but it's not nearly as dramatic as, you know, being the being the anti-Trump. And so it's a way to to carve out this really like purpose driven, moralistic political identity in a political world that's increasingly where everything is increasingly just flattened by partisanship. And so that's that's my answer to that question. I think that's really where you brought up George W. Bush, I think, is actually very interesting um, because, yeah, what has struck me so much about the modern era is basically like no one likes George W. Bush. anymore, And he is, you know, if you were to just look at, well, like, you know, who was once the most popular president ever? That'd be probably George W. Bush, like just the highest approval ratings on January 12th, 2001. Um, you know, there's there's context for that. Um, but also we think of like the modern era as being one defined by, you know, such rigorous um, party identification and people refusing to cross party lines on anything. And George W. Bush was the most popular president because so many Democrats were willing to say, yes, I approve the job the president is doing and later became one of the least popular presidents that we have on record um, because Republicans turned on him. And mm-hmm. and they uh, they still, you know, he's largely unpopular within his party today. And the Iraq war, no one likes the Iraq war anymore. Um, and it's not even clear to me, like, what the pro-war party is. I don't think there, there really currently isn't one. I mean, like, you know, Biden has enough uh, support to, uh, you know, to, you know, be able to offer some military support for Ukraine and some military support for Israel. But in terms of like, uh, you know, getting up a group to go invade another country like th- that constituency doesn't doesn't exist today. Um, and that has been a, a very significant change. And some of that is Donald Trump, um, you know, just like what his code, you know, constituency represents. Maybe some of that is just still like a lingering reaction to what went on in Afghanistan and Iraq um, that everyone just sort of turned on that. Um, But that's been a pretty stunning shift in American politics in the last decade or so. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that this sort of head to head comparison of, of George W. Bush and Donald Trump is um, really interesting. And it does, but it also does sort of bring into relief how little the, the Romney wing is, is part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, where I think, again, like, otherwise Romney is just sort of this weird one-off kind of um, kind of politician. George W. Bush has also pushed back um, against Trump, but maybe because he's not especially popular, he hasn't been, been super influential in that. Um, but that's, yeah, I think that that's really interesting. And um, I think we should avoid going off on a George W. Bush tangent. And... Um, I and think that would be a great topic for a whole other podcast, but uh, Agreed. which we should do someday. <laughs> we should. We should. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining for me this, with this. This has been a really interesting conversation. And, uh, you know, to the extent it matters, folks, I would uh, encourage you to read this book. Um, I think it's a really fascinating uh, examination of a of an important politician and also of a party at a moment of change. And uh, there's still time to get it uh, into people's uh, Christmas stockings. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Be sure to check out the, the Substacks, Tusk and Julia Azari, when you're finished reading McKay Coppin's book.